The following podcast contains strong language and may not be suitable for all competitive twister pairs. Oh. I went to a game store yesterday, and that's where I thought about that one. When I sneeze, bring Galactus to his knees. Getting rid of galaxies with great ease. Please, Aries don't wah with me. Seize, hold the his armies of breeze. Swim with the winds of the east. Feast, I'm saying I'm a beast. I'm saying I'm a mutant to freak. Greek mythology, honestly, Zeus is unstoppable. Welcome back to the Better Left Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Smith. I'm a former congressional candidate in Washington State's 9th District, and we are joined today by... Ash, who is a local music artist um, and incredible person. Hello, Ash. Howdy. How's it going? It's going very well. We are joined by Troy, obviously, who you can hear. Hello. And we've got Jay doing our uh, production, and he's just nodding. And I've remembered consistently over the last, like, 10 episodes. Impressive. Jay. You've done well. Yeah. I always forget. It's the thing. So we actually have a two-part series with Ash. Um, we're talking with them about their music, about their journey, about queerness with queerness and gender identity and toxic masculinity um, and what it means to be a hip-hop artist and what it means to do what they do. And we have a two-part series. This is part one where we get a little bit more, uh, we have, have a little bit more guidance to set you guys up to understand the second part of our conversation that Kamali joins us for where it's a little bit more of a dialogue and we're talking a lot about the weedsy stuff and then we're just, we're getting more into the detailed stuff and the the stories about what Ash has been doing and, and what Ash does. So we want to start out by talking about what is the Better Left podcast? This has been a question that I think we've all tried to set up with by doing the podcast to express to people. We've talked about it a little bit, but I want to make sure we specifically and explicitly mention it here. So the mission of the Better Left, pod, Better Left podcast is we want to take everyday folks who do a wider range of things in their lives. Um, we have There's a death doula we want to talk to. There's a woman who studies the the social habits of crows that we want to talk yes. to. Um, we've talked to congressional candidates. We bring, are bringing people in. Uh, we talk to their staff. Neighbors. Um, we have neighbors come on. We have discussion about religion. And we're trying to express to people how is it that we see politics in our everyday life? So in the things that we do from from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep, putting on our makeup is political. Um, sitting down to eat a meal is political. Listening to music is political. So we want people to really understand that nothing you do is apolitical. Nothing you do has no political ramifications. Every person that says, oh, I don't really do politics. Yes, you do. You do politics every single day. You just don't realize it. I was also going to add to that the idea that you have to rise up in your world to meet politics is actually the wrong way to think about it. You actually have to bring politics to you and that bring it up to your level. And that's really the way to think about it as a tool. And the idea of, you know, our hope is everybody podcast, everybody get on and speak your piece, learn a thing, admit that you don't know, share what you do know and just grow. And our mission is to make sure that everybody is educated about the communities that are a part of everything that we do. We want everyone to know that their their neighbors are political, whether they, they think they are or not. We want people to know that six streets over, eight zip codes over, 10 states over, wherever you are, every, everybody in your community is part of politics for you. And communities intersect in crazy ways that we never would have thought. And politics plays into that in crazy ways that we never would have thought. So we have Ash, who's come on to talk to us a lot about what they do, a lot about what they represent, a lot about their journey. Um, and I kind of want to kick it off with something that's a little bit related to you as a person and you identify as non-binary. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. So Ash identifies as non- non-binary in the hip hop community. And I think that's really cool. Um, how So when you think about your gender identity, how does it shape your music? Um, does it change how you approach and what you write? Does it change how you approach your, your craft and your art? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say that it changes anything. I would say that if anything, it amplifies uh, because part of hip hop is identity. And with identity comes authenticity. That's why we have all of these petty quarrels throughout the history of hip hop about who is really who they say they are? Well, this is who I am. And when I close my eyes, I don't I don't think about gender roles. I don't think about gender tropes. I don't I don't subscribe to that. I don't it doesn't resonate with me. Uh, these ideologies about what it means to be a man. I already don't even feel like they're monolithic. I, I, I've said this before and I stand by it, but I don't believe that there exists a place on this planet where uh, the, the concept of what it means to be a man or a woman is just universal. Uh, so for me, it, it's just about amplifying who I am and, and using hip hop as the vessel to do that. 
And when you came to this conclusion about your gender identity, what was that journey like for you? How did you come to that conclusion? Like what what was the thing, the part of your life that really made you sit and say, I need to examine my own gender identity? Honestly, that has been an ongoing journey. Uh, and it really wasn't until recently. It wasn't until about two years ago that I had, I guess, the the terminology to go with it, mm. you know. But I'd always felt this way just growing up, being raised as a boy and not quite fitting into that box and not really understanding why. Yeah. And, and being surrounded by some not, not so good adults who... I guess they didn't know how to address it. So uh, they perpetuated a lot of homophobia, uh, a lot of, well, this is supposed to be that. And since you don't fit into that, then what are you? Does this mean that you're actually this other thing? Uh, So, yeah, I just uh, I'm here now. Interesting. I want to ask real fast about that, that moment of realization where you were like, I am different, but not. But I feel good. Like, I, I don't feel weird i'm ostracized or i'm or people are treating me in such a way like how long did it take for you to kind of unpack that i was uh it's a bit of a cliche but i i was that that nerdy kid you know so already i felt like an outlier uh you know and i really hate this cliche uh there's a rapper earl sweatshirt who uh he has a very famous and somewhat infamous line about how he felt too white for the black kids and too black for the white kids. But unfortunately that is a, it's a common reoccurring theme amongst what we would call out black kids. And that's, I mean, that's, I I didn't really have a lot of identity growing up, you know? So, and the first thing before, before I even got to gender, I discovered my blackness, you know, what it, what it means to be black uh, and and exist as my own person because that's another thing about identity is that in this country, if you let others tell it, to be black is monolithic. That yeah. that that is a stereotype. You are this, and you do these things if you're black, but that's not that's not true at all. Uh, so in in just discovering that part of myself, I was able to take it a step further and say, okay, so I'm black because I am who I am, uh, and also I don't subscribe to these gender roles because I am who I am. Did you, uh, sorry, uh, I'm fascinated by the notion of, because it happened sort of the same way for me outside of the fact that I'm white, uh, growing up and feeling that the queer label fit me so well and and there were that, that escape from the binary to be able just to kind of be freed from the expectation to act in a way that is just not, doesn't come naturally to me. Um, did you feel the same, given the intersectionality and the story that you're telling, did you feel the same kind of freedom? Um, were you liberated or were you more cautious? Like, How did that sort of frame your life moving forward? Definitely liberated. You know, I, I don't need to posture. I don't have to mm. peacock. Yeah. I don't, I don't need to be this masculine figure. Uh, and not that there's anything wrong with that. I just feel like masculinity and femininity honestly have less to do with gender i I feel they are their own separate entities and i know that sounds a a little bit hippy dippy but i don't know they're closer to drag than not (laughs) so (laughs) hey and i i think that's also another important part of this conversation as well so we talk about identity and gender identity and Mm -hmm. um, i think i think you had a really good a really good point when you talked about your identity with your your blackness. Would you cons- is that more something that you would consider like a cultural identity that led to you having this personal cri- this personal discussion? I don't want to say crisis; it's not the right right word for that. Um, but having this personal questioning of your gender identity is that, or do you consider them to be pretty much the same things? It's just who you are. No, they're definitely not the same. You know that's why we have intersectionality, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because if I were if I say I were a woman, uh, I would be a black woman. And, and that complicates things. There's nuance there. So for me, blackness comes first because, you know, unfortunately and fortunately, that is how I'm perceived and identified. Uh, and so just in discovering who I am within that space, it opened the door for everything else, right? I, I get to, to set the tone. I get to set the rules. I get to establish who I am and who can take that from me. Right. right. I love that. 
I do and too. When we chills. when we think about this this term, I think a lot of people we we talk about this in the second half a little bit more about uh, cultural fear and over instability. But when we think about this term of non-binary, um, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And so for for you, what does it mean to be non-binary? Um, does it mean just identifying beyond masculine and feminine, or does it mean something else to you? Is it more? Is it is it less about those that that um, construct of each particular uh, gender role? Uh, for me, it, it would be the absence of that construct. For me, it's about fluidity. Uh, for me, to be non-binary means that perhaps you do subscribe to those gender tropes, but you do it on your own terms. Maybe yeah. you feel one way in this moment or a different way in that moment or all the ways. Or maybe you just don't. And that's where I fall on the spectrum is that I just I just don't. I can't. I couldn't tell you what it what it means to be a woman. And I also, I don't feel these things are innate. I feel gender is definitely taught because it is a construct. So I, I couldn't tell you the first thing about what it means to be a woman and the things that I've picked up on growing up. None of that resonates with me. And it's the same with what it means to be a man. I just yeah. have I, no interest in that. It's fascinating to me when you think about how it may sound to someone who is so I want to say socially engineered to depend on the binary to define their reality, their day-to-day -day living. Um, this could sound terrifying and how bizarre and how weird, but the I find the opposite is true. It, I, I become more tolerant of all people when I'm in my own skin, you know, when I'm just fluid and doing the thing and living the life the way I want to live it and treating people, you know, doing all the things that I love that you included the notion that there people may be non-binary but still ascribe to or feel comfortable in a space where they are more masculine or more fem feminine and that can change day to day um just like humans i mean it's yeah and so this this journey that you've been on in this particular space in your life is is it something that you've seen has it affected your success at all in in your art and your craft and what you do uh to an extent you know it, when, we, when we get into these topics about social constructs, uh, one that I benefit from is colorism. And so I feel that softened the blow a tad bit uh, that I would have otherwise received if I were a more darker skinned male presenting figure. Uh, but there's definitely been a lot of resistance and pushback. Unfortunately, hip hop historically now is a space that perpetuates a lot of hypermasculinity. Uh, and with hypermasculinity comes homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, uh, things that I'm against. I appreciate the way that you broke down what this podcast is about, because in a lot of ways, that is what I represent as a hip hop artist. I, I want everyone's perspective. I want to be inclusive of everyone. If this is a space that was built to protect the marginalized, to amplify the voices of the disenfranchised, then we, we have to do that. It mm -hmm. can't just be all of these phobias and yeah. just, I can't, I can't. And, get, and reasons to keep people away or keep people out. And uh, one of the things, too, that I love about what we do is we're not afraid to within the, that that organism of protection and, and amplification to invite some people who wouldn't normally sit and parlay, you know, and uh, we've had a lot of fun watching them immolate. <laughs> oh, yes, it was fun. There was a particular episode we did with a volatile individual who we got chastised at first for giving him a platform, but it was because we gave him a platform that we were able to illustrate how little he actually knew and how dangerous he actually was. He lost fundraisers and lost a bunch of stuff because of it. So that was us. We did that. <laughs> it was worth it. Um, so when you uh, when you've when when you've been going through this whole process of finding yourself and finding your own skin and finding yourself in your own skin, um, where you're dealing with your identity, is there a particular person or an artist mm. or um, any uh, some historical figure or somebody that you've looked to for inspiration or kept you going? Someone who worked as your um, uh, your lighthouse. That's the phrase I really like. Someone who you, you used as a lighthouse. Like that person did it. I, I want. I love that strength. I want to emulate that strength here or this identity here or anyone in the in that community queer non-binary that you really saw as that pillar for you oh wow several Whew. where do i <laughs> where do i even start uh first of all always grace jones i always have yeah. to give her dues because i i feel she really redefined what it means to be masculine and feminine uh, but also still retain your gender identity 
Because if I'm not mistaken, Grace Jones identifies as a woman. She's not non-binary. So that that's groundbreaking. And she did this as a black woman, which makes it even more groundbreaking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Prince goes without being oh, said. Sure. Like, oh, I yeah. Mean, yeah. It's Prince, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> oddly enough, though, a, a lot of my other influences, they don't. It's not so much about gender identity with them. It's just about existing as who they are. And believe mm. it or not, the, the biggest influence I have for that is a rock band or a stoner metal band called Queens of the Stone Age. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like they, uh, there was a really cool docuseries that they were a part of uh, called Sonic Highways. It was about the Foo Fighters. They were creating an album. And the way that they worked on this album is they would record one song in a different city. And so every episode is about the history of music that. in that city. Uh, they Seattle was one of the cities. DC, that's where Dave Grohl is from. Fun was fact. Austin oh, cool. in there? I believe Austin may have been in there. I know Nashville was in there, Chicago. Yeah, the episode that I thought I would like the least turned out to be my favorite. It was Los Angeles. Oh, hey. I just I assumed it was going to be about a lot of glam rock. Uh, and no disrespect, but I'm, it just doesn't resonate with me. Uh, but they spent a great bit of time exploring Queens of the Stone Age, even before they were Queens of the Stone Age, just when they were Caius. And the thing that stuck out to me was just they were explaining. Well, Josh Hami was just explaining how at the time of their, their inception, when they were really young, uh, they were all in the desert in Southern California and they would go out and have these desert shows where they were trying to, I guess, imitate the sound at the time, that that punk sound. Mm. And he was just explaining how there was just something hollow about it. It just didn't feel right. So then they started making the music that just felt more comfortable, that sounded like music in the desert. And it turned out to be a beautiful thing. You can even go back and listen to what they call the desert sessions. And I, that's, I'm going to check that out. That's pretty fascinating. So uh, that, that that just stuck with me. Just be, being being your own entity and and sticking to that. Just being who you are and listening to yourself and knowing well, this doesn't quite resonate. I might want to shift and change for my environment. I yeah. I have a I hope I'm not stepping on a question because this is uh, you know I find as a as somebody who has played a, a a role as a mentor in working in nonprofits and and doing that kind of work. Um, it's interesting for me to reflect on people who have looked to me as a mentor. Who looks to you as a mentor? Or do you think in those terms? I I don't. Uh, I, I'm flattered, honestly, when, when anyone expresses. Uh, yeah, I, well, no, that's not entirely fair. I, I have been in actual mentor roles. You know, I've taught teenagers culture and history of hip-hop i've i've tutored teenagers yeah. even middle schoolers so i guess they would see me as that that sort of mentor figure yeah. uh but i don't i don't even feel like i know enough to be yeah taking that sort of you know but i'm grateful that anyone would be willing to listen to me yeah well and what's interesting about the whole mentor situation is i feel like for me it gets stuck in the binary as well because if you're not living a life where you are the mentor and the mentee, even with the same person, with the same group, with the same, like you've got that give and that take and that flow. Like today, I just can't do it. Like I just can't do it, you know, help me, you know? Um, and that is, uh, I feel like that is truer to the, there is no, I'm always just going to be mom. Mom has a hard time sometimes, or dad has a hard time, or you know, like those archetypes that you build and the mentor mentee relationship is one of those. But uh, I um, having the opportunity now, I think this is our, this is our third podcast together. Yes. Second, third, no third. Yeah, yeah it's third. It feels like three um, because I've had an opportunity to really see the way that you express yourself and the way that you are so open to the, interrogating the idea and sharing your thoughts on it um, in a way that is leaves space for people to kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's um, for me, I feel like it's a great fertile place to kind of explore my own thoughts on that or how I kind of see myself in the world. And that's, you know, that's a pretty remarkable contribution even to, to this conversation. I totally agree. Earlier when you were breaking down, you know, what this show stands for, uh, I feel just being black and existing in my skin is political. Yeah. Uh, being happy 
as a black person, given the climate of what is going on in this country socially, is political. It's also activism. It's an act of rebellion. Uh, you know, I could yeah. I could hang my head about who's president, about the centuries of white supremacy, right? Or I can hold my head high and I can be proud of who I am and I can use who I am to make a change, to make a difference, to inspire and galvanize others. So I definitely appreciated your opening and I appreciate this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Truly. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Thank you. And having these conversations with us. And I know we've, so some of these, uh, the next questions we've talked about a little bit, and there's a reason why I held back and I didn't, I didn't go dive in a little bit more to some of uh, your answers and some of these other little nuances. And I know if, I have some people that listen to this podcast who are like, jump in, but now is the part where I'm going to jump into some of those. Uh, so we talk about this, we've mentioned it a few times, this concept of masculinity and toxic masculinity and what is to be masculine and feminine. So how have you experienced masculinity and the concept of being masculine in your life Ooh, uh you know wow i love this question uh i would say growing up the concept of masculinity that i observed and learned was very superficial mm. uh it was very gender-based to be masculine means to be a man uh and that's just not true at all for me to be masculine is just simply to be firm and i believe that anyone can be firm uh i feel to be masculine uh there could be a bit of consistency with that to be dependable. Uh, anyone can do that. I don't think that you just, you have to be a man to do that. So that's how I view masculinity. Uh, and I, it's funny because when I speak about toxic masculinity, a lot of people, especially men, uh, their immediate reaction is just visceral. Yeah. Uh, why are you trying to take this away? No, there is a such thing as healthy masculinity. Uh, you just have to accept that, it's, first of all, it's not exclusive to you. As a man. Yes, you're not at the expense of someone else. Uh, and not at the, exactly. Uh, and so that is my, I guess, more positive view of what masculinity is. And, and I feel even I have masculine energy, uh, not even necessarily just in my appearance, but I feel there are moments where I can be firm, uh, where I can uh, protect things in, in that way. I feel you can be, I feel... Femininity would be the the tenderness when you're protecting something, and then masculinity is that firmness when you're protecting something. And, and I feel people are capable of both. And I and I'm, the thing I love about this conversation is this is a, a a dialogue about how you feel in your skin, and so you know. Ipso facto, it's true. <laughs> you know, it's fact. <laughs> and this is part of, I think, the biggest, one of the biggest conversations that we don't have actually in the mm. world and, and in today's political climate, today's gender discussion climate is what we talk, hear about toxic masculinity all the time. And we, we know it to be this, this um, hyper masculine idea that you can't cry or show emotions and then you're not a man and people throw horrible phrases at you and work and they call you all kinds of names. Sure. Um, but the part, the component that we're missing is we're, we're missing the the yin to that yang. So what is healthy masculinity to you? What does that look like when you're actually being, when it's healthy masculinity, what does that present to you? If you had to speak in the binary term for people that live in that binary world and that find comfort in that binary world, if they wanted to, to keep their binary, their gender binary and exhibit healthy masculinity, what would you say that would look like? I feel rap had the right idea, right? I feel that uh, rap beef and diss tracks I feel on the surface, that's healthy masculinity. Why? Well, because people can naturally be uh, combative and argumentative. And I feel talking about your, your issues oh. with one another yeah, yeah, uh, okay. is healthy masculinity. You know, it, it happens in these spaces. People puff their chest out. I feel where rap gets it wrong is when instead of talking about these issues, we start to insult each other. And that's when it becomes toxic masculinity. Uh, and so, you know, just... Just being thorough, just being direct, being clear, that that to me, and that's not to say you couldn't be those things if you were effeminate or had or or there was feminine energy, but I just feel there's a certain level of uh, consistency with masculinity. Uh, you can even look at it as a, a guardian, protector type of energy. Uh, and, and that's how I view it. That that to me is healthy masculinity, knowing when to speak to someone, uh, knowing when to shield someone, uh, knowing when to dial back, just controlling your own strength. Don't be overbearing. 
any anyone could yeah. do this, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely crosses that that gender sort of expectation. Um, the other thing that's really interesting to me is the idea of looking at genders, and now as as they've kind of <coughs> as we've shattered some of the some of the definitions, and there are people who are who are greatly disturbed by that, and and you can see it, and you hear it in the media, and you see it in uh, you know as people kind of speak to why they them and why Fox you, News. We're talking about Fox News. We really are, um, and and anything on YouTube. Um, but uh, what's interesting to me is these discussions are as again unique as the person describing their feelings because you know when you were talking about the masculine in the context of our common day what we what we have been conditioned from birth to understand as masculine and feminine those things make a lot of sense to me but i also i know some women who are fierce and they will you know like they do the thing and and you would think that that is more masculine because we've been trained you know but it's interesting when you start to kind of peel that away you can still speak in those terms because that's what we have. I mean, it all makes sense. Uh, so if my answers no. seem like blurred, I just want to say it's because I really don't see this in a binary. Yes. I just yeah. I see people as people and people are complex entities. Yeah. And I'm a Trekkie. <laughs> and, and, and one that's why one thing that gene roddenberry did that i love is he found a way to take all these different parts of the human psyche and use them as attributes for these alien species these different alien races and so it, it seems like you have all of these different things interacting with each other but it's really just different parts of the human psyche and that's how i, I view wow, everyone yeah. everybody is their own complex yeah, a facet of a larger, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the concept, of, I love viewing everything as fluid. I grew up a tomboy. When I was, I grew up as a tomboy, all that stuff. Um, and then as I got older, I I started taking on traditionally more feminine characteristics. Like I started wearing makeup, I started wearing heels, I started wearing a lot of dresses and skirts, and now I will live in dresses over the summer. Um, but it's this concept of fluidity and not ascribing these physical traits to masculinity and femininity is how I've always looked at it. Um, I think you're totally right with gender. Cons- gender is a social construct, and I feel like w- we talk about this in the next ha- in the next half of this conversation, but it's it really is a way people find stability in really unstable circumstances. And I think that it's, it's important to keep this conversation going and have this conversation because when you actually when, when people say um, in in towns where they're or places where they're struggling really hard with this uncertainty and this gender gender idea, identity provides them stability um, when you actually start asking people to define what it means I think that's when people start to actually have to think about it yeah. and then they realize I don't really know why I think that's feminine or I don't yes. really know why I think that's masculine and that's an important thing to prompt people to do is to to question the binary in their heads because if you can get them to think about their own perception of the binary you can get them to to start to recognize other people's perceptions are going to be different and it actually helps them accept this idea of of gender identity as a spectrum a little bit better i agree and, and ash i want to uh, make a clarification um for me I'm, I'm going through my own sort of dialogue of how to have this conversation as we near the holidays with people that are my family and how to have the discussion and sort of shake loose from that and so um i don't think what you said was hazy or foggy or or blended. I actually think it, it, it's giving me a space to think about how I'm going to tackle that, you know. And also, guess what? You can just feel comfortable in the masculine if that's where you're at. That that's okay. And you very perfectly touch on what my next question was. <laughs> that's a really good segue to my next question. <laughs> um, so when you're when you're doing something like that, like educating people on what toxic masculine masculinity it is, or like what what it is to be toxically masculine, when you're trying to educate people on this and you're trying to to talk to people about this concept, what's the biggest hurdle that you see when you're trying to talk to people about mm. this? When you're t- expressing and talking about your gender identity? Oh, uh, you know, it, people just have a difficult time unpacking things that they were conditioned like that's what really what this all is it's about being conditioned if you were taught something and you were led to believe in that thing for your entire life until adulthood it's difficult sometimes it's shocking that uh even even like the the concept of tomboy which i don't understand i feel like that's the biggest example of 
oh, we screwed this up. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried to make these rules and our rules don't make sense. And this is our anecdote to, to try to make it make sense. And it doesn't because it's like, all right, we say we say that girls and women are only supposed to do these things and that boys and men are also only supposed to do these things. But if you're a girl or a woman who does those things, well, you're now you're a tomboy. Here's your tomboy pass. Yeah. Even though you're still a girl and woman <laughs> biologically, it doesn't change anything. But because you, you play sports, you get dirty, you go outside, oh, you're different. But you're not. Mm -hmm. You're not. You're just a girl or just, woman who likes to. Yeah, I was just me. I was just a kid. And I, I totally agree with you. The concept is so bizarre, but it's the easiest way to explain to people like who I am as a person. And I've, I've kept a lot of those quote unquote traditionally masculine traits. I've, I grew up dominantly with male friends and I've kept a lot of those like I'm very assertive, I'm very direct. And there are things that you wouldn't think women quote unquote should do. They're supposed to be demure and say, well, I think maybe this might be a, jokes. a way to do it. Yeah, I will aggressively steal your jokes in particular, actually. <laughs> um, but it's, it's true. It's, it's getting people to realize like those are we, we try to protect. And that those are masculine and feminine traits because we try to delineate between masculine and feminine so starkly that we want women to be quiet. We want the concept of, of womanhood to be a quiet thing. And we want the concept of, ma of manhood to be a loud thing. But people don't work like that. No, yeah. People are not wired that way. And I happen to be extremely rebellious. And when I was told that I must behave this way to be considered a, a girl, I'm like, well, whatever. I refuse. I'm not doing it. And I will still be considered a girl. So do what you got to do, mom. <laughs> but it... It's it's weird for people to look back on that and think to themselves, why did I consider my kid like a tomboy or my son a tom girl? Like, why did I consider them that? Um, I actually don't know if that's the right phrase for um, for the male inversion of tomboy. I don't actually know. No, what actually, it's is. much more pejorative. I mean, like sissy and you know uh, the f word. Oh, and, oh yeah, no, it's bad. It's not good. Well, that's as a as a as a man who grew up maybe not the most masculine of men in the room. Um, it was a constant thing that people said i think because i was always tall i kind of came out six feet tall um i you know the lizard brain and kids would be like well that's a tall person i better not try to beat him up and they didn't um but you know it's uh it's definitely a harder thing uh, tom girls are fun and they're out doing the thing in the woods and the stuff and that kid's putting on makeup you know i i think this is all ego uh because you know, unfortunately, we live in a I can also draw this parallel with racism and white supremacy. I'll do that later if you want. But we live in a, an, an androcentric society. Right. Most of the things in this country, they're centered around men, even pornography. Yes for the most part, yes. is centered around the male experience. And our health care and our health studies and our medicine. Everything. Our, yeah. So the the idea that a man uh, could be less than now is how they see it. That's how they view it. You're taking away from the things that make me special, the Smashing things that the world, yeah, uh, right. society says that I am special for. You're taking that away from me, and I don't like this. Why are you attacking masculinity? But it, it's not an attack. It's just saying that... Others can do these things. This is why they attack Serena Williams. And they yes. use all sorts of transphobic things because they can't fathom this woman doing the same thing that men are doing. And that racism piece as well. They just want to find ways to tear her down. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's um, also there is this piece of the discussion that is really not about the person they're talking about. It's literally themselves. They are you are fighting with their worldview and how dare you deviate because that must make me something that I'm not. And how dare you? It's an offense. And it's uh, it's sad. That's a, I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it. The the world is interesting. It's why you can get Viagra delivered to your door and women are still fighting tooth and nail to get birth control. While spending 4,000 times the price they ought to on um, on pads and tampons. It's just yep. ridiculous. With the, and the pink tax that we get hit with. Anytime a luxury tax on... Ugh. To make an item pink so you feel more feminine. Are you kidding me? Oh my God. Gross. Um, but when you think about these people who they really lean hard into their masculine identity. So I've, I've met... I've, being in uh, operating a lot of male circles i've met a lot of these people who lean really hard into this concept of masculinity um, and they take it to a toxic place they take it to that really toxic uh, uh end journey and for me my my big question and the thing i want our listeners to really question is what makes what do you think makes people go to that place like what about that what about their experience or what component do you think draws them towards that toxic masculinity what do you think is the number one thing that pushes them towards that conditioning Again, you know, when you're taught 
from a very young age that this means that or to be specific, drawing on the examples that you gave earlier, that if you cry or if you wear pink, uh, then you're considered these pejorative terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sexuality is another thing that comes into question because a lot of people conflate sexuality with gender identity. Yes. Uh, and so they say, well, you know, you're doing these things that aren't traditionally seen as masculine. So what are you then? Uh, and there's there's fear in that, right? That's why it's called homophobia. Yeah. Uh, and I know that obviously y'all understand that. But, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> it's good for people to hear it. <laughs> and so I, I just think there is, uh, again, in addition to the androcentrism, there's the patriarchy. Yeah. Right? And in order, it's almost cult-like because in order to uphold that, you have to subscribe to these things. You have to get emotional. You have to defend mm-hmm. them. You have to die on that hill. If you don't, there's no patriarchy. If there's no patriarchy, there's no androcentrism. And the patriarchy is wired to maintain itself and to sustain itself by attacking the person who didn't get it done. And thus the cycle of uh, pain and suffering continues. And so to to draw it into kind of the next thing that I really want to talk about, too, which a lot of this stuff for everyone listening uh, second episode, we, we kind of do a lot more weedsy stuff with a lot of this, a lot of these conversations. We break it down a little bit more. Um, but this is a good we want to provide a better framework so people understand what's happening in the second half of this of this conversation, because we think it's important. Um, so with with your music itself. So I want to kind of circle it back to your music. So you are a hip hop artist and you're locally based. So you live in Seattle. You're yeah, I just moved Seattle. here. Just OK, moved cool. Here. And when I've listened to some of your music I actually I had a commute down to Tumwater and I was like I want to listen to Ash's music so I at least have listened to the person I'm going to be talking to um, your music is very um, passionate so uh, there's a broad spectrum of of feelings and and emotions that your music really evoked for me while I was listening to it and I was, I was really impressed I was very surprised because I was like oh man you always think you're only going to listen to one thing like Mumford and Sons <laughs> is like one thing the whole time so one um, song. I listen to music my friends describe as oh it's corduroy but sound <laughs> I'm like, oh thank you everybody um, one of my friends saw two dudes in overalls walking too many pigs and he's like oh I was like hey it's your next favorite band I'm like thanks thank you walking too many pigs yeah that's too, too many pigs that's real oh, that's wow. Brian saw that and he's like oh, it's your favorite man um so your music was really i was very impressed by the the breadth that it that it covered um what inspires your music when you sit down to do you even do you sit down and write things down or are you just do you speak from the heart and like and put things together that way i know some people just record off the cuff um some people don't even they sit down and write they don't even have time to do off the cuff stuff makes you nervous so they sit and they write and they write and they write or they do poetry and they find music to put to their poetry what is what is your inspiration what does your process look like for this e for all of the above Mm. uh my life experience is probably my greatest muse you know i i see things i feel things they're all these stimuli and they inspire me from the smallest thing it could be an anime that i saw that day or it could just be me going back and watching a history documentary that's one of my favorite things to do simply because when i go back and listen to older artists especially vietnam era i get to really understand and learn the context the layers behind who they were speaking to why they were speaking to these people what they were trying to achieve what was going on around them and how that impacted them because it's the same now in 2019 going into 2020 all of these external stimuli politically again politics can't be apolitical yep uh and i just write them and also another thing back to identity i'm a nerd i'm never going to change that I'm never going to give that up. So my thing is, how can I bridge the gap between my quintessential nerdy interest, be it comics or sports or history with hip hop, with rapping? How can I bring these two things together and just be who I am that every day? So I'm always writing that that's a thing. Uh, And I do have concepts. That's a thing. Uh, And sometimes I really am just off the cuff. I have a song, No Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah, it's a very uh, emotionally charged anti-white supremacy song. I wrote that. I did. I wasn't even trying to. Honestly, I was. I was sitting in a black-owned fish fry in Harlem, and I was waiting for my food. And there was a huge portrait of Malcolm X right in front of me. And this white guy walks in, and I just get so upset because gentrification. Unfortunately, it is the bane 
of New York City. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just upset because I'm like, there's so much culture here in Harlem. Harlem means so much to us as black people. And all these outsiders see it as it's just literally prime real estate. It is a cheap, cool place to live for them. That's yeah. all they care about. Uh, and that, that infuriated me. And so I wrote. I just felt like I had to write. I wrote exactly what I felt in that moment. I think it took me maybe 20 minutes. And then I got my food, went into the studio. I didn't even eat. I just set my food down, got on the mic, and that's how I felt. And I deeply encourage people to go listen to this. I really liked uh, Tangerine Dreams was the other one I really liked too. Yeah, you have some yeah. fun too in your <laughs> lyrics. You have some, yeah, you really, I, there's some There's some joyous moments in there. So fun, fun, fun anecdote. Tangerine Dreams. All right, so that was intended to be somber. And that mm-hmm. was my first lesson in how chords affect the listener. Mm. Because unfortunately, the feedback that I got from my audience, they felt like this was a bop. They were excited. They were like, wow, I love this. this is so cute. I wish I could give all my friends flowers too. And I'm like, oh no. That's not not this that is way. supposed to be sad. I'm saying that I am I am upset. My friends are constantly being accosted and killed by the police. And I wish that I could give them the power to fight back to not die, but I can't. All I can do is bring them flowers to the funeral. I even attempted to rap at like a lower tone mm-hmm. just to, and it, it didn't work. So with no sympathy for the devil, I made sure from the moment the beat starts, you can make no mistake about how I feel and what I'm talking about. Oops. But yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you don't want to yeah. say about the, the uh, Tangerine Dream, but the, I think too it's the act of or the talk about to honor people who are suffering or have suffered or uh, that there's some... There's something in there that is good for people to hear that have been marginalized or, you know, sort of put in those positions. And so I think that that might be, too, what they're picking up on. Yeah. In our uh, in the so we did we record this kind of backwards, but we did our second half of the conversation first. We did our this half now, the first half now. Um, So I remembered I actually went back. I listened to a couple of the albums we talked about after we had that and had that conversation. And so I started like changing the way that I listened to music. And I it became important to me to listen to lyrics over everything else. And like listening to that song, it hit me immediately what it was about. I was like, yes, obviously, it's he wishes that he gives his friends like superpowers to be able to withstand police violence and brutality. But he's he's giving them flowers because they're dead because of these institutions that are murdering people of color in the streets. Like that's obviously what's happening. And it was really powerful mm-hmm. for me to listen to. And like it was kind of humbling. And, you know, as being a, a white person being faced with like the the pain that you can hear in your music, it's it's uncomfortable and it should be yeah. like we should be uncomfortable about this. We should be outraged about this. Like culturally as a, a country, we should this is should be a place where it should be a no brainer for us to come together and fight back like this should be unquestionably the place where we put our, where we draw the line and put our feet down together. Like, and it was just, I, I really enjoyed listening to your music actually. And so it's been a fantastic, a journey for me learning a little bit about like myself and but listening Sarah to ran- how I listen to music. She ranted and, and raved about the music. She just, this is so good. I Thank did. I was in Slack and I was messaging him. I was like, I she is going. Not- yeah, she was on a journey. I was. I was, was like, great. I do not know why it took me so long to expand expand my horizons and my palette. The same thing happened to me though. Uh, We had uh, you and uh, Kamali on. We were sitting down and we were uh, uh, kept everyone's throwing out stuff so I'm writing things down so I can get get it in the show notes and I started listening to your I was like this is really good. That you, you know, I've got friends that are like, yes, uh, would you like to hear my music? And they pull out a banjo and a harmonica. And I'm like, no. Oh, <laughs> and, and then I buy their album. <laughs> you oh, buy their album because they, <laughs> they're walking too many pigs. But uh, but it was uh, it was really uh, uh, illuminating and it was refreshing and it, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. So when you're here in Seattle, do you perform a lot in Seattle or do you are you do you travel more to do gigs outside of Seattle? Or are you here? Oh uh, well, I, I just relocated here, uh, so I've I've had a show, I've had a single show, uh, but for the most part, I've just been in hibernation, preparing for the next decade and what's to come and what I'm gonna roll out. Uh, and I'm excited to perform here more. I like the history of music here in Seattle. There are a lot of great bands that have come out of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes people forget how important the city is musically. Seattle's kind of weird because it's a major city, but it's also kind of small. Yeah. So I feel like it's overlooked and forgotten about a little just in terms of impact historically. But I I see Seattle. I I see Seattle. Yeah, we love Seattle. (laughs) We're a weird place. 
So the hip hop scene in Seattle, I know that we have a, a very strange, interesting musical scene. I had a friend that was big into the Seattle punk scene. She used to go and photograph bands. And so that's like what I know is the Seattle punk scene. Um, what is the hip hop scene like in Seattle that you've found either as a, a performer or as just a, a, an attendee? Very diverse, very elusive, very scattered. Uh, first of all, shout out to Dave B. I have been listening to this dude's music for a little bit. I had no idea he was from Seattle. Uh, also, shout out to Rosie Rocket. Rosie Rocket is a trans woman. She is amazing, amazing hip hop artist. She can do anything. She can produce. She can rap. She can sing. She can dance. She's the bee's knees. That's right? amazing. We, we don't say bee's knees in hip hop, <laughs> but I do. We do now. When uh, someone blows you away enough, you do. <laughs> they blow you away so you become a Caucasian grandpa from the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> and so I we talk, um, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about the, the political history of, of hip hop. And do you see that it's particularly more political here? Like, is it is it more about politics and voting and... and um, and the frustration around politics or is it it does it still have the same breadth that it did in, in new york city or is it more narrowed or nuanced here oh wow uh new york city is its own planet i don't even know i wouldn't even know where to start with new york city because it, it's new york and it, yeah. you know honestly atlanta has kind of taken uh the lead in the past 12 15 years atlanta is is the the current mecca but new york city will always be the mecca that's where hip-hop was started uh so you're gonna find everything there here in seattle i have encountered some socio-political art but i haven't been here long enough so i don't want to give uh too much of a definitive answer and if anyone out there is listening hit me up i would love to meet and collaborate <laughs> Uh, because I know that there must be more socio-political acts out there. There has to be. Uh, at least I hope there are. There's a lot For happening sure. in the city that I feel locally people should be speaking out about. So Yeah, for sure. And so... Um what brings you to Seattle from New York? At leaving the, the crazy mecca landscape of New York, what brings you here? So uh, I love nature, first and foremost. Uh, and I just kind of wanted a break from from new york city from just being around all of these buildings and i wanted to just go someplace where i felt the air was cleaner uh and i mean what better than the pacific northwest uh but also i have a very great brilliant friend here named kamali who is the leader of a local community activist community organizing uh organizing organization uh called safe uh which I love SAFE. It's an acronym, Seattle Against Foreclosure and Eviction. Uh, and where do I where do I where do I start? Let me let me let me do dial this back. Do you do work for SAFE? Or I is do. That what you I, do? I've joined SAFE. Okay, cool. Uh, and I I kind of had this this strange epiphany uh, just touring across Europe because I guess the first the first epiphany that I had I realized the importance of solidarity in numbers right i i learned that well i'd already already known you know black americans we make up 12 percent of the overall population here and that seems like such a small number and then i looked into what that is in actuality and it's 45 million so there's 45 million of us so historically you know as long as there are a lot of us in close proximity when we band together our voices our problems are amplified this is what the civil rights movement was about and everything thereafter and even before over in europe it's a bit more scattered uh you know in, in the uk where they have a, an overall population of 66 million Black people only make up a, a very small percentage of that, just under 2 million. So their issues may not always be heard. It's easy for them to be swept under the rug, ignored, uh, gas lit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I look at a city like Seattle where it's only 0.4% black. Mm -hmm. And I see my friend who is a transplant. He's not originally from Seattle and he's doing this work. And I just think, geez, you know, I wonder how much Seattle could benefit from that sort of solidarity since there are so few black people here and he's one of them. I want to go there. You know, in New York City, it's so diverse. There's 8 million people. There's plenty of uh, organizations uh, that that 
focus on pro-blackness in the black community. They, they don't they don't need me. Even even back home where I'm from in Memphis, we're a city that's 67 percent black. So we are a black city. Mm-hmm. They don't, I don't feel they need me there. Uh, so I wanted to come here where I could really contribute and, and participate and help and be a part of something and building something up here. Uh, and Kamali gave me the, the space to do that, a safe space. That you, is awesome. You came at the perfect time. It is a time of action, of of uh, standing in defiance of the things as we have known them. And, you know, we're talking about Bezos. We're talking about Shama. We're talking about all of this stuff. It's uh, it's an exciting time to have a new friend kind of in the mix. It's really, uh, it's important. Yeah. And I think that's a phenomenal reason to be out here. I mean, I think everyone wants to go where the where all these organizations coalesce. And it's usually places like uh, D.C. or New York City. Um, and they they forget the other cities that really do need them. They need their activism like a little corn corn, little corn corns in Iowa yeah. doing the work in Iowa because no one wants to go to Iowa and do work. So she's out there and she's doing her her activism for uh, uh, Senator Sanders campaign. I think people are there. There's a lot more risk associated with going to those places that need the help. And so I think that's that was a big leap to take and to come here and do work here. I feel my role as a hip hop artist, as a performing artist, is to galvanize people at the very least. If I have this platform, I can inspire others to at least form their own educated opinions uh, so that they can make the decision. I I feel a lot of people are intimidated. They believe that in order to uh, become an activist. They have to go through some sort of trials or uh, training, or yes, you know, that they, certification. If you're if you're not out there uh, boxing the the police or holding a sign, that you're not an, a, a true activist. But that's not true. It, it's really about finding your your niche, uh, finding a space that's comfortable, and just maximizing that. Uh, and the same with politics. A lot of people are intimidated, and they they believe that uh, if they don't or do participate in the presidential election that that's it when in reality we have legislation we've got midterm elections uh we have district even smaller local elections city council these things affect our everyday lives that's another thing cognitive dissonance is huge in this country oh yeah probably because we're so big it's easy to space out and and not even realize what's happening on the other side of the country let alone the rest of the world or your own backyard sometimes exactly so i just my role in all of this is you know hey since you're paying me attention let me show you these things i won't make the decision for you i'm not going to tell you what to do but let me at least provide these resources here you go and find your passion. That's what we always tell people on this podcast. If you're if you're just going through the motions and doing it because you think it's what you should be doing, you're not going to actually do the hard part of the work. And I think finding your your passion is is the biggest thing. And everyone wants to care about everything. We have we have this commitment fatigue and outrage fatigue. Yeah. Um. Everything is important. Everything matters. Climate matters. Healthcare matters. Education and transportation. Um. It all really matters. But find the one that really galvanizes you. If it's anti-war, work with the groups like. Oxfam or Amnesty International, um, focus on the one thing that really drives you because we need all those components. We need all of those individual people with that strength and passion for each individual single piece of the puzzle to fit together. We 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 need climate activists just as much as we need education activists, just as much as we need social justice activists. We need all of those components and we can care about all of them equally, but put your energy into the one that really drives you because that's really what's going to propel the whole movement forwards. And we try to tell people that all the time. Get involved in whatever you're passionate about, not what you think you should be passionate about. I was also going to add that I think it's uh, important to be open to the moments where you can learn a thing, uh, where you can be exposed to a perspective that is delivered in a way that you might not have been ready to hear. And that can be through rap, through art, through uh speaking through you know a die-in through i mean like there's a lot of different ways to do that just being open and waiting for that to kind of come is uh kind of half the battle yeah and so you do work with safe in seattle now right i do um talk to us a little bit about that what does safe in seattle do what's their mission oh uh where, where where do i start with safe they do a lot of things sometimes it's overwhelming for me uh, community justice, the right to live in a sustainable and equitable community without the oppression of militaristic law enforcement, uh, economic justice, mm-hmm. the right to equal work, equal pay and work with livable wages. Uh, I don't I think a lot of people are unfortunately 
not aware of what a living wage is. People know about the minimum wage, but they don't even know about the living wage. And that's a big deal. Uh, environmental justice, the right to communities that aren't dumping grounds for corporate waste. Uh, in Memphis, where I'm from, again, 67% black. Uh, an overwhelming amount of black people if you're looking to gentrify a city, right? A city where the living wage is only $10 an hour. This is a warehouse blue-collar city. So how can they get rid of black people? Environmental racism. Don't pick up trash from these apartment complexes. Let it build up so that it creates nasty infestations so they have an excuse to just knock it all down. And literally dump toxic waste in their yards, in their... I mean, it is... Listen, unbelievable. There, you can look this up. There have been neighborhoods in Memphis where the it was just so toxic that the grass wouldn't even grow from the soil. And you turned me on to that when you were talked about it in the first podcast. I was like, "What? What?" And I looked into look, it, and it's egregious here in Washington State as well. Look into it. Uh, there was even a situation. I'm embarrassed to say that the eco activists lost this debate. I don't understand how. Uh, but there was a situation where a company, I cannot remember the name of this company, but they basically wanted to dump their waste uh, into the aquifer system, mm -hmm. because Memphis is on top of aquifers, mm -hmm. rather than the Mississippi River. They wanted to use that clean, amazing drinking water for their waste. For and all the reasons you would think, because and, they didn't give a shit. And somehow the eco-activists that were protesting lost at the uh, local hearing. And I really don't understand what argument you can have against their argument. Hey, stop. This is our water. Yeah, yeah, we, we're thirsty. We drink we this. We must live. Yeah. We have uh, a finite amount of drinkable fresh water. You think about here, about the Duwamish, um, it is, uh, it's that same very, like, you know, industry polluting it, and they're still cleaning it up today. Um, oh, and so lastly, SAFE is just about social justice, uh, the right to exist in an intersectional community based on inclusion. Uh, and so there are a lot of, there's a diverse cast within SAFE currently. A lot of queer, disabled, uh, just every every type of person that you can think of is currently a member of SAFE. And Kamali has been spearheading this, and I believe in him. Yeah. Um, but Thanks. we, we want to make sure that our listeners hear SAFE in Seattle a lot yes. because we this is the kind of justice that we need. And we think our city is really progressive, and we talk about this all the time. People really think Seattle is super progressive and super on the forefront, and the fact is is that we're not. Um, we're struggling with gentrification in similar ways to a lot of places um, we hear we just we talked about it a little bit in Memphis and New York City we're also seeing it here um, we're using astronomical uncontrolled housing price rises to kick people out of their lifelong communities we're completely displacing entire neighborhoods mm -hmm. worth of people with our gentrification because we're skyrocketing these housing these housing prices through the roof and making places unlivable uh, there's not enough affordable housing there's no regulations that are helping prevent this and keep that massive inflation and so we're we really are struggling but it is a lot more than just housing and housing prices. It's making sure people have enough money in their bank account to keep their lights on and buy food. And people don't think about living wage being tied to eviction and foreclosure. Um, they they don't think about it immediately because it's more than that. It's more than just being able to pay your rent. It's being able to pay your bills, being able to eat, being able to buy your gas to get in the car, family, being able to fund yep. your Orca card so you can take public transit. Yes, yep. Um, so it's important for us to make sure people hear this, that there is an organization that's that's diverse, that is in the weeds, that's doing the work, that's it really involved. And so when they when they hear the involvement of Safe in Seattle, what is is Seattle is Safe in Seattle working with legislation right now in the city? Are they working for legislators? Or are they mostly focused on activism and volunteer work in the communities? No, uh, I believe that Safe. Uh, there was a local. Uh, he just won a seat with city council, and I'm pretty sure that Safe supported him. Uh, uh, you, you're you are thinking of a, a multiple folks that were in the fight for uh, for oh, the yeah, city. Like Tam Tammy Morales, Tammy Shama. Morales, yeah. uh, Shama, and uh, Sean Scott was one of the folks that were in there. Um, uh, Jermai, I believe, right? Or oh yeah, Jermai. He oh, uh, yes, yes. Just met him the other night. Um, yeah, he ran. He he actually. Are you talking about the the? He ran against the. Um, it's we covered Ed, his race Ed, too on uh, This is 
Yeah, we we talked to him, didn't yeah, we? we? Yeah, did. yeah. He's super cool. He's a. Uh, I think he, did he win a ma- uh, uh, mayoral seat? No, no. It, it's the what? count. Uh, ca- county council. Ah, council. King County yeah. Council. That's what it was. And he ran against a, a a very nice gentleman who has done great service, you know, for the city, uh, for the county. Um, and it was a little controversial, but um, but yeah, he we won. need a new. We needed a new yeah. set of. A new set of hands in that seat. Uh, I'm, I'm also forgive me. I'm just learning about everyone. Yeah, no, oh, yeah. I've yeah. only been me, me here too. for a couple of weeks. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's we've we stay on top of a lot of local elections. We actually talk a lot about local politics in Seattle because I think it's really important for people to recognize the importance of local. And I know we have a lot of listeners from across the United States, and, and the so world. we try to make sure that everyone understands that we. We talk about local politics in Washington and our state house and our county councils and our city and our city councils. But we want people to understand that we are just a microcosm of what's happening in their backyards. So the stuff that's happening here, it sounds like it's just focused on Seattle. We talk about all these people who are just focused in Seattle. But the the reality is this is just a one one tiny little petal on the gigantic flower of our nation that you have one, too. You're sitting on a petal in the flower of our nation. And all you have to do is is pay attention in the same way that we're trying to help people pay attention here so we might talk about stuff that's local to seattle but it's also local to you dear listener in florida new york and kansas wherever you are or tacoma or tacoma wherever you are this is this is local to you as well um does safe have any sister organizations that you know of are there is there is there are they open to to partnerships with other organizations that might be doing similar work to them that might be located elsewhere they are open to partnerships also uh their facebook is the people are safe uh that's also their twitter handle except it's uh instead of people being spelled out in full it's the abbreviation ppl okay uh, cool the people are safe um and yeah they're de- they're open to collaboration uh hip-hop artists well as, uh, as evidenced by the fact that we've had the two of you on our podcast three times now <laughs> fair, <laughs> ready fair. for yeah. ready for some partners ready for yeah yeah and we want to try and see whatever we can do if there's organizations out there that are doing similar work whether you're in washington whether you're in texas wherever you might be um uh make sure that you're reaching out and checking in with safe and seeing if there's a way that you can partner nationwide even just using each other's media platforms to elevate each other yeah. everything works everything helps please strengthen numbers yeah. Right. The one can become the many if we just band together. I know that sounds so uh, so cliche and corny, but it works. Sometimes it, the simplest stuff is the p- most effective. If you go back in history, that's what the silent majority was. They band together in solidarity and not addressing the uh, horrible things that were happening in the country. And even still, they still exist today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't feel like they're that silent anymore. No, I feel they certainly uh, are they're emboldened now by yeah. social media, but. Back then, before there was a social media, they were just the quote-unquote silent majority. Uh, and they had a lot of voting power nationally. So we can we can do that. Yeah, team up. Team up, everybody. And if people wanted to find you, how could they find you? You can find me across most social media platforms, uh, AshLeon901. Uh, you can also find me on any streaming platform, music streaming platform. You can find my music, my stage name. Again, it's Ash Leon. Uh, there is an accent mark facing to the right over the O. Uh, and you can find me in safe, just doing what I can as an activist and also as a musician to help inspire people. You are very easy to find your, your the depth and breadth of your um, uh, your work and how responsible you are when talking about your work and how you present it. Um, to me, it's something that I've really grown to enjoy about your, like you have a very, you have a, a diligence and a, um, and a uh, structure that I lack, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Um, and it, you know, it's helped out with the podcast as well. But once you start looking, your uh, folks, you're going to see and hear and be inspired to get involved um but uh yeah look them up look them up you'll find some good stuff do stuff and support local artists everybody go Aww, to shows pay yeah. for tickets do what you got to do pay your dues uh, without throw a show try to live a day without art that's what i keep telling people pay your artists it's really important make sure you're supporting local artists if you want to keep local music going go to local shows pay for local tickets uh support local establishments that support local folks that's how we keep this going um so thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the better left podcast where on this one we believe it's better left to ash thank you for having me (laughs) thank you ash 
Oh, no, I don't And Jay will fade out with music, which will obviously be country. Yeah, he likes, yeah. This voice in my head, I wish I could fade it. The one whispering, you know you won't make it. These demons be trying me, but I can take it. in my head, I wish I could fade it, no one whispering, you know you won't make it, these demons be trying me, but I can take it, if living is dying, then why am I trying, what are these wings and why am I flying, what does it mean, where am I going, looking at broken mirrors, asking what are you showing, changing the channel, it change, I find a new level, some call it a phase, expanding my range, Saturn returns, I gain a new pace, right what I learned, my heart used to burn, like you Storms got wiser with age. If something is nothing, then nothing is something I balance with grace. Tethered to nothing, I float in my space. Orbit is something I go up my pace. Open my eyes, I welcome my fate. Caught by the stars, I won't hesitate because I know that I'm great. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. This voice in my head, I wish I could fade it. The one whispering, you know you won't make it. These demons be trying me, but I can take it. Off of my back, get that pain out of my pocket. See the universe in my eye sockets from a falling star to a skyrocket. I'm a die prophet. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. This voice in my head, I wish I could fade it. The one whispering, you know you won't make it. These demons be trying me, but I can take it. Straight for the stars. Constellation created from lyrics initiated by gadgets, particles starting from all of which in the late. Infiltrate mental mind as your thoughts become intertwined and fighting this battle dies like ultra intimidate. Penetrate interface, sit and then meditate. Dropping these shells upon all these beats in the human race. Cause I matter this world of my enemy is invasive. So I become my worst enemy fighting until this day. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. This voice in my head, I wish I could fade it. The one whispering, you know you won't make it. in my head, I wish I could fade it, no one whispering, you know you won't make it, these demons be trying me, but I can take it.